0: Welcome to Doing Diversity in Writing, the podcast where we, as writers, explore the do's and don'ts of writing inclusively, whether that be in terms of race, gender, ethnicity, class, sexuality, ability, and so on. Why are we here? To bring more depth and breadth to the characters in our fiction and represent them in the best way possible. My name is Bethany Ann Tucker, and with me is my co-host, Marielle S. Smith. Let's get started. Hello everyone, welcome to episode 4, uh, Cultural Appropriation and Incremental Improvement. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. But before we get there, hey Marielle, how are you doing? Hey Bethany, I'm good,
1: still researching cozy Mysteries, and I've been doing some work on the third edition of um, 52 Weeks of Writing, my author, journal, and planner that I want to get into bookstores um, by December 1st so that's what I've been up to how are you how
0: have you been well I'm waiting for the third edition of 52 weeks of writing because if I don't have it by January 1st I'm going to be very cranky (laughs) no pressure
1: it should be there it should be there don't yeah no I'm 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 I'm
0: I'm good uh, for now okay well I'm excited just so you know and as for me, um, yeah, I, I experimented with more house uh, repair work yesterday, and there was this big can of gap filler, and you're not supposed to let it touch your skin or breathe it in, or you're supposed to wear safety goggles, and I found out why at the end, because the canister exploded on me, but we finished the job literally two seconds before it exploded, so <laughs> we're good, and I was wearing safety goggles.
1: That's not a good way to find out that you cannot touch the stuff.
0: Uh, I read the instructions first. Reading's important. I was oh, wearing good. all the safety gear, but oh, I didn't expect good. to need the safety gear. And then I did.
1: <laughs> well, this is why you read. This- Listeners, this is why reading is important, if only to save your life.
0: I'm not sure I would have died, but I could have had some nice chemical burns. <laughs>
1: Oh, lovely. There's a, yeah.
0: Anyway, moving on. (laughs) Yes. Um, Okay. So
1: last episode, we talked about some very common fears when it comes to writing more diverse characters. Um, But there is another fear that we want to bring up, um, and that's the fear around cultural appropriation, which is a highly charged topic right now.
0: It, It really is.
1: Yeah. And years ago, like really years ago, readers of my blog over at MSWordsmith.nl, they asked me to write a post on it. And I have to admit, I've been terrified to do so. It felt like such a minefield and not just a a minefield, but a highly confusing one. Um, Once I read about cultural appropriation and writing the other, Um, the book that we've mentioned before and that we still highly recommend. Um, So if you haven't grabbed a copy yet, do so. I felt slightly less afraid to dig into it, but still there seems to be so little consensus on what cultural appropriation really is and what you can and cannot do with cultures that aren't your own. We talked about murky fields before. This is definitely one of those.
0: Yes, it it really is. And we shouldn't forget that the book Writing the Other" was written before 2017, which is when cultural appropriation was defined in a dictionary entry that we can now all refer to, which we will discuss later in this episode. Um, That's an important date for language around this conversation. For example, in my copy of Writing the Other, Nisi Schall has an extra essay titled Appropriate Cultural Appropriation, which blew my mind when I just saw the title. And it's language that we wouldn't use now. Yeah, that's the essay I was referring to.
1: And, And at the time, the title really confused me because from what I've seen online in all those heated exchanges about cultural appropriation... Cultural appropriation is never appropriate.
0: Yeah, no, we've we spent a lot of time working on this. So let's go down the rabbit hole and see if we can figure some of it out. After all, we are diving headlong into the position that everyone should be able to write characters from the full spectrum of human experience. Um, and, and onward if you want to write about trees, et cetera. But before yep. we go down that rabbit hole, I think we need to take a moment to actually define what cultural appropriation is.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think we can have this discussion before creating some common ground, um, especially since on the surface, like cultural appropriation seems to be many things and various people are being accused of cultural appropriation for a wide variety of reasons.
0: Yeah. Before we jump in, I'm going to pause and also say, what's dominant in your culture? So the people who are listening to us or country may not be the same as mine or Marielle's. This podcast can be heard all over the world. When I was in China, dominant culture meant Han culture, Han Chinese culture. I saw some very creative and sometimes highly inaccurate depictions of my own country (laughs) and culture, even history, while being in China. And also, being a Muslim minority in China is very, very hard. People outside of China don't realize how many minority groups are within the political entity of the PRC, People's Republic of China. So think about what these kind of examples that we're going to be talking about in the rest of this episode might be for you as a listener and an author in your particular experience and for your particular audience, country, region, etc., cetera, in whatever language you're writing in. Everything here is going to be heavily skewed Western, as Marielle and I are from Europe and the USA. And also realize there's a lot going on globally. There's more going on than just what you see in your own bookstore. So wherever you are, it's going to be different a little bit, at least, or very, very different. Exactly. So let's get down to definitions
1: uh, to lay some groundwork. Do you want to take point on this one to start?
0: Sure. (laughs) Mind you, um, the dictionary definition only came into being in the last four years. If you search the Internet, pay attention to the dates of when things were published, because you'll find a lot of opinion content out there that actually disagrees with what we're about to say, especially before the Oxford Dictionary settled on the following in 2017.
1: You know, that's such vital advice for anyone doing research. You know, when did who say what about whatever topic? That's a question you always need to keep in mind.
0: It's, yeah, really important. So this is the Oxford definition of the phrase cultural appropriation, and it's the one we're going to be using going forward, as it's the first, first one coming from a widely accessed authoritative source, and we happen to agree with it. So here it is. Unacknowledged or inappropriate adoption of the customs, practices, ideas, etc. of one people or society by members of another and typically more dominant society. So,
1: unacknowledged or inappropriate adoption of the customs, practices, ideas, etc. of one people or society by members of another and typically more dominant society.
0: Yes. For example, If the First Nations people of North America can't attend business meetings in their formal cultural dress, white people shouldn't be wearing parodies of that same dress to football games or dressing up and revealing parodies of, quote, Native women for Halloween. Prior to 2017, you could find articles and publications like The Atlantic where the phrase cultural appropriation was used for a much wider variety of acts, such as wearing a skirt you had bought on holiday in India or using a machine invented in a different country. Today, however, it is much more generally understood to be cultural exchange, where there has been more of an equal footing, money, respect, etc., exchange between those two cultures. Am I being clear enough here? I think so, yeah. And to underline
1: the difference between the two, cultural appropriation and cultural exchange, I'd like to draw attention to that last bit of the definition specifically, because the definition says unacknowledged or inappropriate adoption of the customs, practices, ideas, etc., of one people or society by members of another and typically more dominant society. And I think that is the key. Um So these days, cultural appropriation is understood to focus on those moments, those points of interaction and usage where certain customs, practices, ideas, and so on are being employed by what's usually a more dominant culture without any of those positives you just mentioned. There is no positive exchange going on that somehow benefits those whose culture is being used by that other more dominant culture. Is there any way we can illustrate this with
0: a concrete example? I, yeah, I think we need lots of examples here. <laughs> um, <clears throat> excuse me. As I was reading up on this, I kept thinking about Assassin's Creed 3. For those who don't engage in video games, Assassin's Creed 3 is an action-adventure video game um, set before, during, and after the American Revolution. Or if you're British, you would call it the American War of Rebellion. Uh, As I dug deeper and deeper into the material on cultural appropriation, I couldn't help but compare it with Disney's animated film, Pocahontas. Which came out in the 90s, right? Yes, I had to double check that, but it did. It came out in 1995. And there's definitely something you have to consider when you're making comparisons. Assassin's Creed 3, for example, came out in 2012. So that's 17 years after Pocahontas. Yes. Um, so Assassin's Creed 3 main character, I'm going to try to pronounce these names as best I can with there being very little online that I can trust on how to say them. So I'll just say the names once. Everything will be in the links if you want to look it up. and then I'm going to refer to more English translations just to not butcher these names as I'm trying to pronounce them. So the main character's name is Rahathan. Radu- uh, He also goes by Connor as an adoptive name when he's among the colonists. Um, His mother is from the people of the Flint, sometimes known as the Mohawk Nation, but we now know that that was a slur used by colonists at the time. So, people of the Flint is a translation of the actual name that they use for themselves. Connor's father is a British man by the name of Ratham Kenway, and Connor is therefore half from the people of the flint as english speakers um would say the name and it's i'm not going to continue yeah so he's half from the people of the flint the first nation and he's half from kenway who is british um so the people of the flint were one of the five original nations in the iroquois league uh, most people don't seem to realize it. It's starting to come up more in the history, but this was a literal nation with like something equivalent to a parliament or a congress. They they were a very established, widely uh, powerful league um, in the eastern northern part of the what's now the U.S. and part of Canada. Oh wow! Yeah. So during the creation of the game. Uh, assassin's creed 3 ubisoft the company behind its creation <clears throat> employed two people from the people of the flint um, so one of their names their english name was martin and the other one's english name was thomas deer deer is a consultant and martin is a teacher as of 2012 they both worked at a language and culture center for their first nation During the creation of the game, they were continuously consulted on matters of language, culture, and the respectful depiction of their people. That sounds pretty awesome. Yeah, it does. The game follows Connor and before, during, and after the war, the war, the rebellion, or the American Revolution, that established the United States as separate from the British Empire. Um, I won't go into detail. I figure you can look it up or you already know it. Um, I also haven't played the game. Um, My partners have both played the game, but I don't want to spoil it, even though they've told me what happens. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think that somehow we'll be spoiling enough as
1: it is on the show.
0: Yeah, I think I can talk about the rest of it without having to spoil the storyline, though. Okay, good. Um, (laughs) What I appreciate about Assassin's Creed 3 is That the game acknowledges the back and forth, the complicated politics of the time, Um, including the fact that First Nations were fully functional sovereign nations that both aligned, traded, signed treaties, fought with, fought beside the various colonies. Because remember, the colonies were separate at the time, too. They answered to um, the king in Great Britain, but they also had their own things going on. Um, In the game, there's acknowledgement of atrocities that did happen at the time. There was intermarriage between the colonists and the colonists were both oppressed by the British Empire and also oppressed in double crossing the First Nations that they were living beside and among. Um, Connor both supports George Washington's army in fighting the British and also opposes George Washington at points as their aims align or misalign.
1: Which, you know, that sounds rather realistic, um, because conflicts like these, well, all conflicts, they're never like that simple, you know, that black and white and cultural renditions, they often simplify these facts.
0: Yeah, it's much simpler I to say they're wrong, they're right, and move yes. on. But it's not yeah. how it usually is. No. Um, So try not to be long-winded here, but now let's talk about <laughs> Pocahontas. Yes. And because this is a worldwide podcast, I'm not going to assume that everyone listening will know the story. So bear with us a moment. If you know this already, sorry, but Marielle, you've seen this, right? I did, yes. And
1: as I grew up, it was actually one of my favorite Disney films. Um, I was all about saving the environment, which annoyed my peers in a way because I was like the kid who was like, pick up your trash because it, did you know that it takes 70 years before, like, you know,
0: he composes
1: yes (laughs) yeah that kind of kid that that was me so Pocahontas has this environmental angle uh, you know that criticism towards those who just take and take from Mother Earth without taking a moment to consider the consequences and I just love that
0: yeah I remember adoring that aspect when I first saw the film and I was a kid at the time
1: yeah so the story is about a First Nations woman Pocahontas um, who falls in love with John Smith He's an English captain who came to America with the Virginia Company to create settlements, find gold, and that's what we see in the film. The greed of those first settlers and their disregard for nature and those who are already living there. Of course, you know, Pocahontas' tribe doesn't like that she falls in love with an Englishman. And the warrior she was supposed to marry, he plots to kill John Smith. He, however... So- Sorry, people, this is going to have some spoilers. Um, he, however, gets killed himself in the process by one of those settlers. John Smith is then captured and the chief declares war on the settlers who are getting ready for battle um, to prevent John Smith from being executed the next morning.
0: So, high drama, lots of tension. This sounds like a Disney film. Very Disney, right? Um, and you know what? Actually, it's it's
1: like... a makes me think it's typical of all stories because aren't you always telling your clients up the stakes and make the characters life lives harder that's like most of my job
0: yes exactly if you haven't put your characters through it I will send the book back to you
1: yes exactly um (laughs) yeah I know it's unfair but it is what it is um and this is another discussion um Anyway, all this time, you know, whenever Pocahontas is in doubt, she visits this wise grandmother tree, you know, who gives really great advice. So the day after John Smith is caught, you know, she's had a good talk with the tree. Pocahontas intervenes and pleads for peace. But there's this greedy governor. And if you've seen the film, you know who I mean. He is the guy with the with the tiny dog. Uh, Who doesn't care one bit about what the native population wants. He just wants to claim the land, find gold and riches, and he tries to shoot the chief to get his way. So John Smith, very heroic, he jumps in front of the bullet to save the chief, the father of the woman he's in love with. Um, The other settlers, they arrest the governor because in the meantime... Um, they have started seeing differently. They've started to realize that the governor's greed and his total disregard of the natural world and those who actually live in harmony with this natural world is actually very much displaced. So they are realizing that what they've been doing in the name of civilization, of bringing, civilized, of bringing civilization to like the so-called dark corners of the world, they're realizing that that actually took away much of their humanity.
0: I remember being very, like, impatient with them to reach that point. Yes, (laughs) yes, but they do. They do get that redemption, right?
1: So despite the tribe's attempt to nurse John Smith back to health, he must be returned to England if he wants to survive, being shot by the greedy governor. So John Smith, of course, he wants Pocahontas to come with him, but she decides to stay with her family. Her father, the chief, however, tells John he will always be welcome. So it's not a true happy ending in the romantic sense uh, that Pocahontas doesn't end up with the man she fall uh, in love with but it is a happy end for the tribe and for the british set- settlers because you know they are now understanding the errors of their exploitative ways and as such they have been civilized by the native population that that's how i would sum up the, okay. uh, the plot do you feel like adding anything
0: I mean, that about sums it up. Um, sorry for spoilers, everyone. Yes, yes. Um, so Paca- Pocahontas has been praised as a film that both raises issues of environmental awareness um, as presented by the name titled heroine when she sings all the colors of the wind to John Smith, um, the Englishman she fell in love with. And and she brings up concepts of racism. So I'm just going to quote um, a couple of the, the parts of the song. So she sings, you think you own whatever land you land on. The earth is just a dead thing you can claim. But I know every rock and tree and creature has a life, has a spirit, has a name. In the film, in the very next verse of the song gives a strong nod to unlearning racism. She sings, you think the only people who are people are the people who look and think like you. But if you walk the footsteps of a stranger, you'll learn things you never knew you never knew. I love that song as a kid
1: and even you just like saying that I just had like I immediately have it in my head right like
0: it's yeah yeah I mean having like lived in other countries you'll learn things you never knew you never knew is so (laughs) completely true yes and I was absolutely entranced by the film which I only saw for the first time as a teenager I think um I may have seen part of it or all of it when I was seven, but that was a long time ago. I did see it again as a teenager. The old mother tree who gave sage advice to Pocahontas when she's contemplating like going against the male leaders of her tribe, that was really inspiring to me. I was still in a heavily male-dominated culture and a powerful woman, even in tree form, dispensing advice to another woman. That was earth-shattering to me. That wasn't something I saw outside of like, women giving like domestic advice to each other. But I mean, as a woman, I also struggled in my twenties as I explored the wider impact of the storyline.
1: You mean when you got accustomed to having a more critical lens through which
0: to look at the world? And a dash of other perspectives that helped inform that lens. (laughs) Yeah. The, The film is problematic, not necessarily for what it shows, but for what it Doesn't show based on a historical person Mm -hmm. really lived. Pocahontas really did live. And so the film does erase truths, things that actually happened, which continue to affect living people's lives today. Pocahontas is based on a true story. That's absolutely critical to understand for the rest of this discussion. The heroine in real life was kidnapped and taken to England, married to an Englishman, and died after being paraded around English society as, quote, a noble savage. There's no great romantic love story here. Her people were eventually removed from their land and either died or became second class citizens in what later became the United States of America. As I mean, the tide of colonists kept coming. They just they filled up the eastern seaboard, much like our American myth of including the, quote, friendly Indian references in our Thanksgiving festivities. This film, Pocahontas, ignores the fact that the push for land ownership and resources quickly destroyed the tenuous alliances between indigenous nations, the Puritans, and other colonists. So the ending of the film isn't exactly what happens. Oh, but and this is um, what they didn't show is that the greed
1: actually continued, right? Yes. Because this greed is mentioned in the film. It is criticized in, it, in the film. But what is erased is that it didn't actually end with those settlers running into Pocahontas' tribe, right? Like the film shows, we learn like they learned from it and now everybody mm. is happy and, and can, you know, live together very peacefully, but that's not how it, that's not how it really went. Like, and this greed is still happening. Like I'm thinking the Dakota pipeline,
0: for example. Exactly. So in pursuit of this happening for the story in the film, um, what we just talked about and other things were left out of the story. For example, the older male relatives Pocahontas defies to save John Smith's life are betrayed as equally violent and problematic as the invading settlers who are chopping down the trees, moving into the land that is already occupied by po- Pocahontas's people. Pocahontas mm-hmm. has the answer by following her heart and seeking a nonviolent solution, which is really run- wonderful, right? We We should all get along better. <laughs> you know, that phrase, (laughs) that is such
1: a privileged question to pose, right? Why can't we all just get along? Right? It's, it's also one of those comments that kills any kind of debate. um, Because I don't think people asking that question are actually looking for an answer, right? They just want you to stop talking about topics to make them feel uncomfortable. It makes me think of this phrase I came across on Facebook the other day. Um, So this is a quote, racism isn't a touchy subject if you're not a fucking racist
0: yeah i know (laughs) and if, if if that had been entirely fiction if the pocahontas field had been entirely fiction based in a fictional setting with a fictional happy history following then yes them all getting along better now works just fine but now in the film with everyone just getting along at the end that that that's erasure. Um, Pocahontas' story yeah. was appropriated to make a feel-good movie about female strength and environmentalism. So, yes, to answer the answer to the question too, you can't do one thing completely wrong in search of doing something that's right. <laughs> um, I'm gonna reference a 2015 article on the Lukata Children's Enrichment website, which said which is an organization that empowers um. First Nation youth on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, U.S. They say Disney gets one thumb up for hiring Native American consultants and for the representation of beautiful visuals, but it gets one's thumb down for not seeing the bigger and more disturbing picture. Wait, so Disney hired consultants as well, just like Assassin's Creed 3 did? Yes, I'm not going to say just like, but they did hire consultants. Um and in a way, considering that Pocahontas was released in 1995, it can be really understandable that the First Nation consultants who signed off on Pocahontas did so. Um, it was groundbreaking that the Euro-American colonists in the film were shown as being wrong and the perpetrators of violence were not that far away from uh, like spaghetti Western films where the quote-unquote Indian could easily stand for a quick and easy cardboard and immediately for the white cowboy to defeat and look heroic fighting. It kind of fitted the existing
1: narrative of the time as well, right? Like I'm thinking The Last of the Mohicans, uh, the Daniel Day Lewis one, that one came out in 1992. And Dances with Wolves with Kevin Costner came out in 1990. So, like Pocahontas, these are classic, I'm so sorry about colonialism films, right? The whole discourse
0: was changing. It was. And Pocahontas is a far cry from something like Disney's original animated Jungle Book or Peter Pan, um, both of which films have blatant racist, racist content. So I entirely get why at the time it seemed a good enough product to sign off on.
1: I get that too. And I, I know that healing historical wrongs is not a straight shot, like healing no. isn't linear. <laughs> if only, right? Um It isn't linear, whether we're talking personal journeys or collective journeys, like it's murky, it's messy. Um, So, yes, I can understand why some acknowledgement might feel like worth having, especially when there's been almost none. But that doesn't take away the fact that the bigger disturbing picture remains solidly rooted within our dominant culture and history. And... Pocahontas the Disney film did only acknowledge a fraction of it while erasing the absolute tragedy and evil enact- enacted on Pocahontas herself in real history.
0: Yeah, the disturbing bigger picture is what sets Assassin's Creed 3 apart. The storyline itself and the dialogue of the characters acknowledging the difficulties, the shifting murky loyalties and the moral quand- quandaries of the time period you know, between the British, the American colonists, early American citizens, and the members of the Iroquois League, this this um, that was really necessary and really helps put things in perspective. The makers of the game they didn't show ceremonial moments of the people of the Flint's Nation, so as to not display something sensitive and private, or to trivialize something sacred into quote unquote a gang. Um, so they did do their research, they listened, and they made their story, while being informed by the people that included some of these, the, the people that were included in the story. Uh-huh. They made the people of the Flint's nation relevant to our collective history in a way that the history books of the US had erased and, I mean, seriously used to erase and still do to some extent. So yeah. they, the, the makers of the game, Ubisoft, they didn't glorify the dominant culture. And they still made amazing and commercially viable art. It can be done. It's not easy, but it definitely can be done. I love that, that they didn't show those sacred ceremonial moments. I mean, why
1: show these when they're not relevant to the main story?
0: Yeah, and I don't know exactly what they had to change in the story to not include them. But after consultation, they decided not to include them.
1: I think that's great. And it actually reminds me of that article we discussed, The Appropriate Culture Appropriation by Nishishalb um here in this in this particular article so it's it's if you buy writing the other the book it's um an extra essay at the at the end of the book um so in this in this article Charles talks about a conversation she had with Deantha Day De Sprouse and Sprouse distinguishes between uh, and I thought this was really helpful she distinguishes between uh, three categories of writers who borrow tropes from other cultures being invaders tourists and guests
0: i remember reading about that
1: yeah so you thought it was helpful as well right
0: i thought it was good language to get started with definitely
1: yeah so to break these down um invaders as Shaw sums up um she says Invaders arrive without warning. They take whatever they want for use in whatever way they see fit. They destroy without thinking anything that appears to them to be valueless. They stay as long as they like, leave at their own convenience. Theirs is a position of entitlement without allegiance. End of quote.
0: So my visual here is like Spanish conquistadors in Mexico taking off with all the Aztec gold or the coal barons in Montana. Right. Like I'm seeing colonialism, the expansion of
1: the various European empires, our museums are full of artifacts and artworks that we're taking without permission. It's it's why I love that scene in Black Panther so
0: much uh, when Killmonger goes to take back that
1: artifact at the beginning.
0: Yeah. And the white expert doesn't enter that conversation. She just threatens with security. Um, the conversation that Killmonger wanted to have about why it was there. I wonder for how many people that was a first for him saying, how do you think these things ended up here?
1: Yes, because it's not something most of us are made to think about. Like I was teaching about that back in my university days. uh, And I always made my students visit so-called ethnic museums and critically analyze which story the museum was telling about the pieces in their collection, But for the majority of the population, that question just isn't part of their daily lives. And then it's mentioned in such a blockbuster movie. I I think I might've said fuck yes aloud in the cinema when he said that. Um, I can can, totally see you doing that, (laughs) right? Uh, And not be embarrassed about it at all. Um, Okay, I'm very confident in my feminism. Okay, so that's uh, um, kind of, That's the kind of attitude invaders had, right? So tourists, in Nishishal's words, they are, she says, and I quote, expected. They're generally a nuisance, but at least they pay their way. They can be accommodated. Tourists may be ignorant, but they can be intelligent as well and are therefore educable. End of quote.
0: Yes. So like literal tourists here or where I used to live in Washington state, they run around all summer. They go see everything. They fill up the trails. Um, they want to be there during our period of sunshine. They snap a lot of photos. And then as soon as the rain shows up, poof, they're gone. Yeah,
1: it's an, or like all those expats like myself living in Cyprus, right? Or any country that is a holiday destination, really. Tourism brings in a lot of money, but it's considered a nuisance too. Like right now, we don't have as much uh, or as many tourists because of COVID. Um, and while that is a welcome relief to most of the population, you know, to have the beaches to themselves for once, at the same time, it's really hard because it's such a big industry. Um, so yeah, another murky field. So last uh, for Nishi Shal or the Anthony Sprouse, there are the guests. And and Shal says, and I quote again, guests are invited. Their relationship with their hosts can become long-term commitments and are often reciprocal. End of quote.
0: So this reminds me of living long term in Japan, where I was actually a legal resident with healthcare, and I paid taxes like I had all my paperwork and I was involved commercially and socially. And it was it was mutually beneficial for both sides. Yes. So she then goes on to describe a story in which is in which, as she
1: says, quoting again, the re- just, just buy the book, people. Um, the writer took <laughs> a sacred song here, a tattoo there, snapped up a feast featuring roasted pig and ma- ma- maniac root from somewhere else, and presto, South Pacific Island culture at our fingertips, end of quote. So this is something Shaw classifies as invading. So when I read how Shaw describes tourists more in depth a few pages down, I really got the distinct sense that from what you've shared this far, that this is more like what Assassin's Creed 3 did. So this is what she says about tourists. Um, she says, a tourist can become a guest if the locals like what they see and ask her to return. But before taking on the tourist role, a writer or reader will have no contact with said locals. When first learning about and incorporating aspects of another cultures then, we ought to act like the best of all possible tourists, to stay alert and observant, to watch for the ways our own background influences how we interpret our surroundings. We ought to remember that we have baggage. We ought to be prepared to pay for what we receive. We ought to be honest about the fact that we're outsiders. And since we're in an unfamiliar setting, we shouldn't be ashamed of occasionally feeling lost. We ought to swallow our pride at such times and ask for help, ask for directions, end of quote. That just made me think of Assassin's Creed 3.
0: Yeah, I think we can safely classify the makers of Assassin's Creed 3 as intelligent, educatable tourists. This made me wonder whether Pixar with the film Coco became guests, because the work they did to get that mm-hmm. film right. It was really well received in Mexico, according to everything I've seen. And that's because the makers of the film um, realized they weren't getting it right, went back and just they just hired a ton of consultants from the area and culture where they were that they were trying to depict so that they had advisors on every level. They really did put in the work, but also worked with the people the story was about. Which makes all the sense, right? It does. I mean, it cost a lot of money. <laughs> But one more thing, there's a difference between paying homage to something and ripping it out of its cultural significance context. For example, One Piece, the Japanese anime mega series, uses characters that appear in classic we- Western literature liberally plot lines too. Um, like the introduction of one main character is basically a play on the story, The Boy Who Cried Wolf, which is taken from Greek mythology and included in the collection known as Aesop's Fables, if you're familiar with that. Um, so the, the way it's done in one piece, this is a homage, or as some people will say, stealing like an artist. Um, I adored finding my cultural artifacts spun up in a new way in this Japanese author's work. So
1: for you, why is this not ripping it out of context? Like I, I haven't seen this, um, I don't
0: know it, so I cannot really envision it. Okay. So, For one, my culture is not oppressed by the Japanese, so it doesn't fit the term cultural appropriation really. But two, this doesn't rip it out of context to me because I do truly view it as stealing like an artist, that in the author of one piece, Aichiro Oda, he enshrines the essence of these borrowed stories. Like he truly understood them. Like watching them, I'm like, if anything, you made the stories better, like gave them more life. And continue them in a new way by including them he he truly proved that he understood the truths like the that kernel in the middle of the story that he's using Mm -hmm. and what he did it just it felt like homage and respect more than anything else so you know as, as writers we know stories are built on stories every story has a seed of another story from it before it more or less and Oda is creating this huge world, Um, like his world building is phenomenal and it's like it's world size and he's using stories from all over the actual world to do it. So he's filling it up with stories that already exist, told in a new way, like they're very much his stories, paying respect to stories that existed before in the literary canon across the world. So it feels very intentional and very well researched. Okay, yeah, that
1: makes total sense to me. Okay, so let's review. Why is Pocahontas cultural appropriation and why is Assassin's Creed 3 not cultural
0: appropriation? So because Pocahontas erases the truth of a history and a people, particularly the woman it has decided to depict, like the the name they decided to use. And Disney made and continues to make a lot of money off of this story. While we're acknowledging this, we're not ignoring the Pocahontas was a breakthrough moment in a First Nations character for um, for filmmaking um, because I was a First Nations character, a woman no less and headlined a major film by a major film studio and went on to sit very high at the box office.
1: While well, that might be true. Assassin's Creed did it better, right? Much better.
0: What Assassin's Creed Three did better was that the creators did not erase? They actually raised visibility in a respectful manner of the people they were de- depicting, the First Nations people they were depicting, using a platform that the disadvantaged group of people themselves did not necessarily have access to, just because of the cost and the skill sets needed, just the amount of investment required um, to make this kind of film and the kind of platform that Ubisoft had with the Assassin's Creed um, series. So, Ubisoft did make a lot of money, but they did something um, and raised awareness of something that uh, the people they were raising awareness for could not have necessarily done at the time for themselves. Plus,
1: while they made a lot of money, they also invested a lot of money in the people they consulted with.
0: I don't know how much they invested, but I know that they did invest and I know that they were paying people. Yes.
1: So this comes, this, um, the same goes for Coco, right? You said they spend a lot of money getting Coco, right? Oh, a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. But the, but the money is well spent in that the money was spent on hiring the right people. It went back to the community that they were trying to depict. Yeah. That's my point. Yeah. So in that sense, the reason that is not cultural appropriation, if you look at the definition, is that it's a cultural, ex- it's more of a cultural exchange. Like there is an exchange. There was positives for both sides. Yeah. Okay. So in 1995, Pocahontas was pretty groundbreaking. But now we're 26 years later, we want more, right? We collectively
0: know more. And that means that we can do better. Yes. This makes me think of basically failing forward. Um, I'll probably have a lot more to say about this idea of growing and improving as we continue this podcast. But yes, Pocahontas certainly was the first film that I ever saw that, was, that put a positive atmosphere around a First Nations character and focused on valuing natural resources in the earth. But I also believe that we can do better now.
1: I, I do like your concept of failing forward, right? Because that's, uh, yeah, it reminds me of um, what Brene Brown says. She
0: says, I'm not here to be right. I'm here to get it right. I'm definitely not the first one to talk about failing forward. But yeah, yes, no, I like the okay. Brene Crown quote too. Yeah. So but that just makes me think of that. So to get back of
1: of, of uh, to why we need to do better now is like I'm I'm thinking of Deb Holland, right? Um she yes. was just made Secretary of the Interior of the United States. She's the first nation person to hold that position. And what is more, she's the first First Nation woman to hold that position. So We need to do better now in our cultural presentations.
0: Yes, this is a big deal. This is the Deb Holland, it's the first time someone who is a First Nation descent will be in charge of the department that actually works with the First Nations tribes in the US. Right, and this is why Pocahontas no longer works because we need better role models,
1: ones that actually fit what First Nation women are doing and are achieving outside of the fictional realm so these are the versions the voices that we need right it's their histories that we need to be hearing not disney's romanticized version of it We, we need to get closer to the truth yes so to round up the episode do you want to
0: tell our listeners about the checklist we made for this week well, I feel like you just let the cat out of the bag. But yes, for this episode, we create a, a checklist to help you identify whether you're having moments of cultural appropriation in your fiction writing, and if so, the checklist will also help you write these instances differently. Yes, but we're we're gonna put that on the website because it's complicated. Yes. Yes, it'll be on the website. It will be in all
1: the usual usual places. If you're on the newsletter, you will get it into your inbox. Um, But yeah, we're hoping it will help you become... um, Well, first of all, diagnose your own writing and then help you, if you are doing it, um, to figure out how to undo it, to unlearn that. um,
0: Just give you a dose of confidence because yeah, we have spent a lot of time on this episode, a lot of time researching, a lot of time talking because it is such a difficult topic. So yeah. this checklist will hopefully just give you a dose of that confidence to just keep going forward in something that can be, can feel very wishy-washy.
1: And, you know, there was so much we haven't said about culture appropriation, uh, but we had to sort of, you know, look at the time. Um, so yeah, we, we do hope it will help you. Bethany, I'll talk to you next week when we'll be going into detail about how representation actually works. How does it work exactly?
0: Yes, I'm really looking forward to that. Have you reached that sweet place where you've written out your entire story? It's a wonderful feeling. You've worked so hard for this, spent so many long hours at the keyboard or talking to yourself every quarter, then going over it again at the computer. It's been mostly internal work, and it's often been alone. But now it's time to take it from rough to polished and for that outside perspective is essential. Let me help you. As a developmental editor, I, Bethany A. Tucker, will take your hand, sort through your draft, answer your questions, and help you polish it until your work shines. You don't have to do this alone. It doesn't matter if this is your first book or your 10th book, whether you've published this book already and want to make it better, or you're teetering on the edge, eager to publish for the first time. Together, we can take your book to the next level. Contact me via links in the show notes or at theartandscienceofwords at gmail.com to take the next step.
1: Thank you for listening. Music for this show was written and produced by Eric Mills. If you want to join the conversation, fill out our writer and reader questionnaires. Both can be found in the show notes and on our website, representationmatters.art. That's dot A-R-T. If you want to be the first to hear when a new episode comes out, sign up to our newsletter. And if you found this helpful, please rate and review on your favorite podcast app to help other writers find us too.